can see that we can experience your faithfulness. Um, Lord, it's through him that we have seen the greatest picture of faithfulness and the greatest picture of love. Um, God, we are so thankful. We are um, humbled, God. We are humbled by who you are. We are humbled by um, everything that you have done for us. Lord, I pray that as we hear the sermon this morning, that we will be convicted, that we will repent, that we will be um, in awe of, of your faithfulness and of your goodness and kindness, and that this will bring us to our knees, Lord, and that it will make us um, just desire even more to spread your word, Lord, to others in this community and in our country and in our world. God, um, I pray that you will be with Jared as he brings us the word this morning, that we will be attentive, and that you will um, write it upon our hearts. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jared Clary. I'm the pastor of Discipleship and Missions. And so uh, Tracy has given me the opportunity to preach this morning and I'm excited. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in that text. I do love seeing all the kiddos in here. Um, if y'all are in here and y'all are working through the listening guide or your sermon notebook and uh, Rebecca has done a great job in incentivizing them coming to church now, too, with bookmarks that they get little punches on. And so you're seeing a lot of kids in here that are working towards a prize after six weeks of, of sitting in big church. And so we are so glad that you're here with us. Hey, we've been walking through Luke, and I just want to remind us, at the very beginning of Luke... Then Luke started this book by saying, I have written an orderly account of these things in order that you might have certainty. That Luke has recorded this gospel. He's recorded the things which Jesus said and did in order that we would have confidence to believe. In order that we would have confidence to obey. In order that we might fully rely and depend on Christ, right? So he's written these things, names, dates, people, places, and you're going to see that again in our text today, is that there are, are certifiable, verifiable facts, which Luke has taken great extents to record and to search out and to find so that we can have confidence, and so let me just review a little bit. So we started there, and then we saw Jesus start to do miracles, and we started to see Jesus then starting to usher in kind of his kingdom. And then we saw Jesus make this proclamation really about his identity. We saw it with him opening the scroll of Isaiah early on and saying that in your hearing this has been fulfilled. And then we've heard it with the declaration of, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says that you're the Christ. We've heard it from heaven that this is my son 
listen to him. And so we've seen over and over and over that we know who the Messiah is. We know who the promised one is that we've been waiting for, that we've been searching for. And then Luke got to this place where he says, and, and it was after Jesus, Peter says, you're the, you're the Christ. It's after that that then Jesus says, yeah, and I'm the Messiah who's going to suffer and die. I'm the Messiah who's going to go to the cross, who's going to be delivered over to the hands of men and be persecuted and be killed and be buried. And then in three days, I'm going to be raised. And so we're seeing this, but there's a a particular thing that Luke records, and, and it follows the rest of the book, that Jesus had turned his gaze to Jerusalem. And so Tracy mentioned it last week that on this journey to Jerusalem which is on this journey to the cross, then Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. And then specifically, we saw last week, the cost of following Jesus. That Tracy had laid out for us as we look at that, that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you your comfort. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you your control. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you your calendar, right? That that Jesus is above all things, and and the cost is high to follow Jesus. But, oh, it's worth it, right? The cost is high, but it's so worth it. And so as we get to our text today, we're going to see that Jesus just told them the cost, and now he's like, all right, put your boots on, let's go. And so let's begin in our text. Here's where we jump in, chapter one, or chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So he's just laid out the cost of following him. And now he's got these 72, probably about half of us, okay? So you think about this, like there's a group, all right, we got two groups. He's like, all right, y'all ready to go? I'm going to send you out, pair up, let's go. Now what would you be doing? You'd be like, well, I'm going to lean in, uh, where am I going, what am I doing? Uh, you got any more instructions for me? How am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? And that's exactly what Jesus is about to tell us, right? So this morning, what I want to give you is five action steps. Specifically for us to see the glory of God magnified in Shreveport. But not just Shreveport, it's Shreveport, Bossier, Louisiana, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Five action steps that Jesus is going to outline if we want to see the glory of God magnified right here in Shreveport. What do we need to do? Number one, he says you need to pray. Look at verse two. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. We need to pray. But we don't need to just pray anything. Jesus specifically tells us what we need to pray, right? It's a little... Offsetting because you're like, well, wait a minute. Why would we be praying for this? He's got 72 that he's about to send out. And he says this, 
hey, you guys need to spend time praying for more to go. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful. We got too few workers. The harvest is plentiful, and there's not enough people to bring in the harvest. Now think about that a minute. What Jesus was specifically telling these people is that there are people in this world, in Shreveport, who will accept Jesus, but no one's offered it. There's not enough workers. There's not enough people telling them about Jesus. There's people waiting to receive Christ, but there's no one telling them. So we need to pray that God will send out more people. Now, I think a lot of times we don't pray prayers like this because exactly what this text tells us, we become the answer to that prayer. Look at verse 3, go. Right? Like when we begin to pray the will of God, God send out workers, then all of a sudden God says, hey, you're the worker. Hey, I'm sending you to your job. I'm sending you to your school. I'm sending you to your relatives. He says, go. We become the answer to the prayer. But we need to beseech God to send out more. Before we leave that point about praying, then I just want to remind us that for someone to pick up and move around the world at the cost of their family and the cost of their comforts and the cost of their control and the cost of their safety, you know how people do that? God sends them out. God captivates them with the message of the gospel and the urgency, and he sends them out. We need to pray that God will do that more. When's the last time you prayed that God would send people to Uganda? It's a mess right now. Ethiopia, it's a mess. Saudi Arabia, China, India. When's the last time you prayed that God would send out more workers in Shreveport, in Bossier, Instead of saying how terrible it is, have you beseeched God to send out laborers? God, send more. God, send more workers. The harvest is plentiful. There's just not enough laborers. Send more. So number one, we've got to pray. Number two, Jesus says, if we want to see God's glory magnified, multiplied in Shreveport and beyond, then we've got to go. Verse 3 says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Well, that seems like an interesting way to go. Quite a motivational speaker. Hey, guys, lambs in the midst of wolves. It didn't take me beyond like kindergarten nursery rhymes, like three little pigs, big bad wolf. Like this doesn't end well for the lambs, right? We're like, what? This is not... Motivational speaking, sending you out as weak, defenseless, helpless lambs surrounded by wolves. Go get them, guys. So what is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is the good shepherd, right? 
What does the shepherd do? Protects the flock, defends the sheep. What is Jesus doing here? He's sending out his laborers into the field as lambs in the midst of wolves, telling them specifically, carry no money. You can't resource your way out of this. Carry no knapsack. Like you're not, there's, you can't like pack your bag and be prepared for this. No sandals, utter poverty, and greet no one on the road. What is he doing? Well, I think he's doing two things. He's saying, you've got to go 100% fully dependent on me. You've got to go dependent on the Lord. If we think we can resource our way to ushering in the kingdom, God's like, can't do it. It's like, that's not the way I've chosen to do it. 100% dependent on him. No money. Can't hop the next camel back to home. Got no money. No knapsack. No sandals. What does that look like for us? 100% dependent on the Lord. I think we struggle in that because we're a resourced people. We're a connected people. We like to plan, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. And God says, are you dependent on me? Because when you go, you've got to be 100% dependent on me. But the second thing that he says is, we need to go with urgency. He says, and greet no one on the road. Right? That could come off as rude to people. It could come off as disinterested. I mean, think about it. It's like, uh, right? Like going to shake hands with somebody and they're like, uh, I got somewhere to go. But we get this, right? You got a meeting to go to. Someone catches you. You're like, I got to go to a meeting. There's urgency Saints game's coming on at 6, and you're like, sorry, can't come. Something urgent, right? We get the idea of urgency, and here's what Jesus is telling his followers. You have a message to deliver that's of urgency. Urgency. When is the last time you felt urgent to share the gospel with someone? That the message of the kingdom was stirring inside of you that you had to get it out. No, I, I, I can't be distracted. I have to get them the gospel. Go urgently to declare this message. The reality is that people are dying every minute. That while we sit in this room, there are people that are breathing their last breath. And some of them need to hear the gospel. There's an urgency to this message. It's not wait until later. It's not I'll decide later. It, there is an urgency to this. It's not when I get out of school. It's not when I get done with this aspect of my career. There is an urgency to taking the gospel to people. And we need to feel that. 
Don't be distracted by the things of this world, but focus on the task at hand. So Jesus tells us we've got to pray for laborers. We've got to go. And then look at how he tells us to go. He conditions this. He says, verse 5, Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Okay, so what is Jesus telling his followers? He says, when you go out, seek peace. Seek peace. There are certain people that do not want you around because you talk about the gospel. He's not saying, hey, be a bludgeon. He's saying, no, seek peace. This is pretty simple, right? In missions, then we call this a person of peace. This is someone in the community. Tracy talked about South Sudan. When the Lewises has moved to South Sudan, what they began to pray for was a person of peace, someone who would welcome them into the community and give them credibility. Wasn't necessarily a follower of Christ. Wasn't necessarily a believer. But it was someone of peace who would be hospitable, who would welcome them. Jesus says, seek out those people. Seek out people of peace. Who is it in your job? Who's kind? Who's peaceful? Who welcomes you? Who is it in the neighborhood? Who's the person of peace? Who gives you the credibility with the rest of the neighborhood? I was talking about my brother to my brother. He lives in Washington, D.C., and right across from him is this, uh, this kind of government housing. And he talks about this lady who grew up in this neighborhood as the person of peace, that if she's on your side, everything's cool. It's a person of peace. He's like, I love having her on my porch because if she's there, everyone's cool. Who's the person of peace that God's put in your life to say, hey, this is your gateway. This is the gateway to sharing the gospel. Maybe there's a person at work specifically that comes to mind. Begin to pray for them. Seek them out. Seek peace. But Jesus goes a step further and he says, when you seek that peace, then there should be a bonding of your spirit and their spirit of peace. But then he says, then you're going to begin to bless them with peace. So you're seeking peace, but you're also bringing peace. So I wrestled with this because I was like, well, wait a minute. I recall a passage of scripture that says Jesus was like, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So if Jesus is saying in this, seek peace and bring peace as you go out, but then in another place he's saying, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword and to pit father against brother or all this other stuff. I was like, what is going on? And here's what he's saying. Us as ambassadors, you as a person, your job is to seek peace and bring peace. The message of the kingdom is going to divide. Jesus' message that there is a kingdom coming will divide. But you don't need to be divisive. The kingdom will do that. You as a person, seek peace and bring peace. 
And I think that's a really good word for us today, right? Would your coworkers, fellow students, family members, would they say you're a peaceful person? Or are you constantly stirring something up? What's your reputation? Do you cool the temperature or do you fan the flame? Are you a person that seeks peace and brings peace? Or are you the instigator? Jesus tells us if we want to see his glory multiplied, we need to be people of peace. Seeking peace and bringing peace. Now that doesn't mean that we are soft on the proclamation of the gospel. But we as people need to be at peace. Here's what he says next. So we've got, we need to pray, we need to go, we need to seek peace and bring peace. And then here's what he says, verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. Okay, now, now catch this. He's, he's laying out two groups. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you. So those that receive you, you found this person of peace. They welcome you in. Those who receive you, he says, okay, so what do you do then? He says that you bless them, heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What an incredible message. We are to herald the kingdom. We are to herald the kingdom. That's point four, that we speak the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, how do you know that? Because if you're in the kingdom, you're a part of spreading the kingdom. And so you being there is part of bringing in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But not everyone's going to do that. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. What? Your message is the same. The kingdom of God is coming. So we've got the command to pray, we've got the command to go, we've got the command to seek peace. And some of you are like, I, I, I can't. You're kind of like Moses. Got a stammering tongue, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to do this. Guess what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. We just herald the message that the kingdom is coming. There is a reality and a truth that God's kingdom is coming which no one can stop. Here's what that looks like, right? I don't have to convince you of gravity. It exists. You can tell me, no, it doesn't. I'll take you to the top of a building and say, jump. It exists. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change the reality that it exists. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is coming. It's happening you believing it or not believing it doesn't change the fact that it's coming and it's near. What believing it and not believing it does is it puts you on the side of God or it puts you as the enemy of God. Now catch this. 
Jesus is about to unpack some really hard words. Because to be an enemy of God is to, to be defeated. I'll just tell you that. We know how this one ends. To be an enemy of God, to choose the side against God, means to be defeated. Look at what he says. For those who don't receive, verse 11, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. It's on you. And proclaim to them, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, what is this reference to Sodom that Jesus is referencing? It's Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. The city which God destroyed by raining down hailstones from heaven and utterly destroyed it. To reject the kingdom, it is more bearable to have hailstones rain down from heaven. Jesus doesn't mince words here. This should wake us up. If you haven't trusted in Christ, the kingdom is near. And we welcome you. Jesus welcomes you with open arms. You trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And he does more than just say, oh, you're welcome. He says, I'll adopt you into my family. I'll call you my own. I'll make you an heir according to the throne. But if you reject it, after the kingdom has come near, after you've heard that Jesus is ushering in his kingdom and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and that by trusting in him, you can be a part. If you reject that, Jesus says this, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. But he doesn't stop there. These are hard words. Woe to you, Chorazin, another town. Woe to you, Bethsaida, another town where Jesus had walked and done miracles. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He says the kingdom has come near and God's mercy has been extended to you in that he has shown you his kingdom and welcomed you in and extended his invitation and you rejected it. Tyre and Sidon, another city in the Old Testament, which God utterly destroyed. He says, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, he's like this city that thought they had it all together, that thought they were doing well. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. These are hard words. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. 
You know why Jesus is able to say those hard of words? Because as his ambassadors, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting God. We have the privilege of being ambassadors for God. We get to herald the kingdom. But not everyone's going to believe it. There's going to be some who reject it. Now, this ought to weigh heavy on us. And, and I just want to spend a little bit of time because these are people that we know and love, right? These are neighbors. These are family members. These are grandparents. Like, we need to sit and wrestle with this reality. That Jesus says there are two groups of people in this world. That's it. Those who believe and obey and those who don't. There are two groups of people. Those who, when the kingdom comes near, they accept it. And those who, when the kingdom comes near, reject it. That's it. There's no middle ground. You either accept it or you reject it. Jesus didn't mince words. He said, you're either with me or you're against me. We need to herald the kingdom. There is an urgent message. And we have been called to be a herald. Listen, it's not on you when people reject it. I think a lot of people don't share the gospel because, one, they don't think that they know what to say. Guess what? The kingdom's coming. Are you with Jesus? But I think a lot of people don't share the gospel because they feel it's a personal rejection against them. But just like what Jesus just said, he's like, when they reject you, it's not just you. They're rejecting Jesus, and they're rejecting God the Father. We need to be heralds of the kingdom. When Jesus sent out the 72 in this passage, then he gives the kind of negative side of rejection. When he sent out the disciples, the 12, he gave the positive side of it. In uh, chapter 9, verse 48, here's what he says. He says, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Right? So we see that it goes both ways. Those who receive you as an ambassador of Christ receive the kingdom. Those who reject you as an ambassador of Christ reject the kingdom. But our job is to herald the kingdom. Your job's not in the business of, of the product. Your job isn't in the business of the proclamation. And so we herald the kingdom. Now, I can just imagine that the disciples after this, they're like, wow, all right, let's go, guys. Can't you? Like, they're like, okay, here we go. People are going to hate us. We can't take anything with us. We're lambs in the midst of wolves. And Jesus sent them out. But look at what happens. I love it. The 72 returned with joy. Right? Like, don't miss that. They went out with nothing, with no shoes on their feet to proclaim a message which people were going to reject them. Can you imagine? Like, they're like, see y'all. 
Like, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know what Hebrew cuss words were, but I'm sure they were getting yelled at. But they returned with joy. They returned with joy. Why? Because it's, it's worth it. But look at this, I love it. These disciples, I don't know if you've ever discipled someone and like, they're really immature in their faith, but they're showing some fruit of faith. And you're like, yes, but. Right? Have you ever been there? They're like, maybe it's a new guy at work or something, like super giddy about something. You're like, oh, just please don't mess this all up. They're like super excited, want to be a part of it, willing to try new things. I love it. The disciples, these 72, they've gone out, they return with joy, and they're saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is awesome. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Like, this is incredible. I remember uh, discipling some students, and I had a student come to me and was like, Jared, I started reading my Bible. I, like, flipped open and was like this, and I, and I read it and, like, see what God told me. And I was like, awesome, you're reading your Bible. Terrible way to read your Bible, right? Like, you, like, don't want to squash the fire, but here's what Jesus is doing. It's the same thing. They come back super excited. They've got joy. And Jesus is going to twist this just a little bit to disciple their hearts. Okay? Here's what he says. He, they return. Verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's like, yeah. Those demons are defeated. I saw their leader fall from heaven like lightning. He's defeated. It's awesome. Yes, of course, of course the demons were subject to you in my name. Why? Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Did you see that? Nothing shall hurt you. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, but nothing can hurt you because I've given you my authority. He sent him out. Jesus has all authority. He is the good shepherd. He sent them out, and they're like super pumped about this. And he's like, but that's not what you should rejoice in. Don't rejoice in that stuff. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. That's an effect. That's not the source. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Oh, man. Don't rejoice in the stuff that you can do. Rejoice in the fact of who I say you are. This is your identity. Your name is written in heaven. So as I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, so practically where does this meet us? Well, I think as followers of Christ... We rejoice in, oh, so-and-so came to Christ, or, oh, this happened, or that happened. Or we rejoice in, like, oh, my kids are making good decisions, and they're moral. Check me out. I'm a good parent, right? Or we rejoice in the fact of, like, my political candidate won. Yeah. These are good things. Yes, I just went there. Sorry. These are good things. It's not wrong to rejoice in that. The demons were subject to them. Awesome. 
Good things were happening. But they weren't ultimate. And here's the reality. Here's why Jesus had to disciple their hearts. Catch this. They were banking their joy on something that may or may not always be there. What is the foundation of your joy? As Jesus talked about, what's your house built on? Is it the shifting sand of good things? That your kids are making good choices. That you've been given promotion at work. That you have influence or prestige, that you got money. These aren't bad things. That you're in a position of leadership. These aren't bad things. But they're not the source. See, this is why Paul later can rejoice in his sufferings. He can rejoice in his weakness. This is why James can write, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of various kinds. Because when you rejoice that your name is written in heaven, there's no circumstances that can change that. When your name is written in heaven and you understand the reality and the magnitude of what that means, that for all of eternity... You will be with the Father. There's joy. There's unceasing joy. You see, as followers of Christ, we ought to be the most joyful people that this world has ever seen. You know why? Because our name is written in heaven. What can circumstances do to that? Your political candidate lost? Guess what? Your name's written in heaven. Rejoice. You lost your job? Your name's written in heaven. Rejoice. That's the foundation for our joy. God uses you in a mighty way. Rejoice. Your name's written in heaven. God's given you influence to people's lives or in the community. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Don't rejoice in these other things. He ends it like this. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's the will of God. It's his grace extended to us. That he would reveal these things to us. He would reveal the kingdom to us. And then we would say, that's what I want. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Do you feel blessed? 
that you see the kingdom, that your name's written in heaven. Rejoice. So let me conclude this. So for us, you walk out of here. What does that mean? Well, we've got five action steps. We've got five things that Jesus calls us to. Number one, we need to pray, send out more. We need to go. And as we go, we need to seek peace. And we need to herald the kingdom, that the kingdom has come near. We leave those results to God. But for us, we rejoice that our name is written in heaven. Let's pray. God, in such a time, would you help us to follow through with this? God, there are people that you have here in Shreveport who are waiting to hear the gospel because they want to trust in Christ. And in your will, Lord, you have chosen to use ambassadors to herald that kingdom, to take that message. We know how will they believe unless they hear. And so, God, we ask, would you send out more workers into the harvest? We know the harvest is plentiful. You've told us the harvest is plentiful. Would you send out more workers? Workers who will go and seek peace, who will herald the kingdom, and who will rejoice that their name is in heaven. God, make us those people. Send us out. Burden our hearts for your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.